Very nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And of course, what, who could resist talking about their life? <laughs> so anyway, I became a scientist because I grew up on a sheep farm in Australia. And during my primary school years and as an early teenager, I saw how the application of science to that environment completely revolutionized agriculture. The invention of um, vaccines for um, clostridial bacteria meant we didn't lose a lot of sheep from the nasty uh, clostridial diseases. Then progressively development of anthelmintics for the uh, helminth parasites we spent a lot of time pursuing when I was a child. And uh, then also applying uh, uh, fertilizer, phosphates and sulfur from the air uh, because the native, uh, so the, the, the soil was very deficient in these, completely revolutionized agriculture. During my lifetime, I saw it all happening, and that's really why I became a scientist. So I was always interested in the application of science to uh, uh, the, the improvement of uh, people's lives. Well, now, uh, I uh, began my university career at the University of Queensland, and I did straight science, but I got very bored because it was all systematics. And although systematics is very important, I knew it wasn't for me. And at the Easter vacation, because this, this year runs from March out there, the university year, <coughs> I was, went home and there was a flyer about a brand new course in agriculture back at the new University of New, South Wales, of, uh, new England at uh, Armadale, a small country town. And uh, this, this uh, new course looked to me exactly the sort of things I wanted to do. It was, the, it was the sciences underlying animal production. So I went down to see the founding dean, who was a former vet, and he was a very informal guy. And I remember him sitting in his uh, chair in his, in his uh, study, leaning back, putting his feet up on the desk, and saying, oh, yes, he said, do come. He said, the first batch of students are all male, and you can, if you get through all your, your, the things you're doing at Queensland, you can join them in their second year. Oh, he said, that'll be great. That'll make the so-and-so's work. So I thought, well, you know, so, so I duly joined this bunch of fellows, there were about 30 of them, in their second year, and they were a bit shocked to suddenly have a woman there, and no, particularly after the first exam when I knocked the socks off them. And uh, they uh, looked at me very strangely, but they gathered their wits and they were extremely nice to me after that. But the interesting thing was, at the end of that four years, uh, the dean said to me, I want to show you something. He said, uh, you know, uh, at that time uh, in veterinary schools, it was quite often there were years when there was not a woman. And he knew, because he was a veterinary man, that in those years the men didn't work. And if there was one woman present, it had a dramatic effect on the male's <laughs> performance. And he showed me what happened. After I joined that class, the marks went up 15% and stayed up. So anyway, um, I'm still in touch with... Uh, the, some of the, there, are only, there are only nine in my graduating class, and only four of us still alive, I regret to say. And one of them now is retired very near where I've retired in Australia, where I have a house. I go out there for the, you know, the Northern Hemisphere winter. And he said to me, he always says to me, oh, you were dreadful, he said. You know, when you turned up, we had to stop playing so much rugger and so much drinking in the pub and work. <laughs> so it was extraordinary, actually. So it just shows you what happens when men are all alone. They don't work. And um, I had a wonderful time at that university. It was fabulous because it was a brand new course, the, the staff all young and enthusiastic. We had a wonderful time, fantastic staff-student ratio. And I loved the research project we had to do in our final year. And that persuaded me I should go on and do research. And so I, got, uh, I came over here to the UK in the first lot of Commonwealth Scholars and went to the university in Cambridge to the veterinary school there 
Well, I had a lovely time. It was a funny old-fashioned PhD where you were sort of told, well, here's a project, come back with your thesis in three years. And uh, so I did that, and I enjoyed myself very much. I didn't fall in love with Cambridge, I have to say, because I thought they were all so full of themselves. I really didn't have much time for that. And uh, I later got to know Cambridge better when I was working for the Wellcome Trust. And eventually, to everybody's amazement, and particularly my own, I became the high steward of the university, which is the deputy chancellor. So uh, that was my experience with uh, Cambridge. Well, after my PhD, my career really had three phases, as Jenny has indicated. I had 20 years doing research. And in those days, it wasn't nearly as tough and competitive as it is now. Organized play for adults, I always used to call it. <laughs> And then uh, I had uh, nearly 20 years at the Wellcome Trust, and since then I've led a non-executive life. So uh, I went to Mill Hill after Cambridge, <coughs> and uh, I had a fabulous time there. Peter Medor was the director, and the, the Nobel laureate. He got his Nobel Prize for working out why skin grafts were rejected. And the immunology there was really a very seminal um, seedbed, really, for immunology, which was a brand new subject when I started, actually. I mean, extraordinary what we tried to do, bearing in mind how complex the immune response is, and we only knew about antibodies when I started. And there was uh, Peter Medua, Avrian Mitchison, John Humphrey, and the late, recently died, Eta Askenas. So they, they were really a very powerful uh, source of training of immunology, not just for the UK, but for the world. So it was fab fabulous being there. And what we tried to do in the Division of Parasitology, which at that time was headed by one Frank Hawking, whose son, Stephen Hawking, you all know about, the guy in the wheelchair. And he was an exact contemporary of mine at Cambridge, but I didn't know him until I joined the uh, uh, Division of Parasitology at Mill Hill. And Frank was a very eccentric man. He always reminded me of that uh, French uh, uh, filmmaker, Jacques Tati. He was all elbows and awkwardness, and he was a very strange head of department. But we survived, and we did very well, mainly because Peter Meadow loved parasitology, because he was a zoologist at heart. And what we tried to do was to work out why, <coughs> whereas with bacterial infections, you give them a vaccine, you never see them again, as I saw as a child on the farm. With helminths and ectoparasites, you get rid of them with drugs, and they come back, and they come back, and they come back. So why does the immune response fail? Uh, of course, I mean, all I did really for my research career was to delineate the enormously complicated immune response to gastrointestinal and ectoparasites. Uh, since then, because I haven't done research since the, since the early 80s, it's been shown that, of course, there are all sorts of suppressor cells, macrophages and T cells, which suppress the immune response not only to the parasite itself, but also to other things. And, um, so that's probably why uh, things like helminths, which don't multiply inside the body, survive. There's a massive immune response, but they just sit there saying, who do you the immune response? So anyway, uh, I had a lovely time, as I said, at Mill Hill, but I got a bit restless after, um, towards the end of my career there. And I went to a meeting at the wonderful Rockefeller Villa, Villa Serbaloni on Lake Como to chair a meeting there, and I met the then director of the Wellcome Trust. And he could see that I was pretty restless. So he, he said to me, well, why don't you come on a sabbatical working half-time for me, and you can go on running your lab up at Mill Hill, which was going very well. And the Wellcome Trust was very small then. The lab was doing well. So I had a lovely time working part-time in the mornings at Mill Hill and the afternoons at the Wellcome Trust running their tropical program 
which in those days had labs in Jamaica, on the Amazon of Belang, in Kenya, South India, and Thailand, where Nick White is now. And so I, I used to run about visiting these places, and I had a grand time. Uh, that was extended for six months, and then, much to everybody's surprise, I decided I'd give up my research career and go and work for the Wellcome Trust, which was, as Jenny said, was very small then. The annual spend was about 12 million pounds. <coughs> and um, the reason I did this was, was because I'd got to the stage in my career where I, I was enjoying seeing others flourish, you know, being excited by science, my PhD students and postdocs. It's a sort of teacher and preacher syndrome, I think. And of course, if you have money, as I discovered at the Wellcome Trust, you can do that in spades. And so I really joined the Wellcome Trust because I knew I could do a lot to help other people's careers. And all the time I was at the Wellcome Trust, my chief interest was in career development. And all the time I was at the Wellcome, and I think certainly up until fairly recently, I can't be sure now, the Wellcome was always particularly interested in career development, working out schemes to, to, to help people to really maximise themselves. And um, so uh, once I'd come joined the staff full time at um, the Wellcome Trust, which then owned the Wellcome Drug Company outright, and our money came as the dividend from the company. It was a single investment because it was a will trust. And um, I then moved on from not just looking after the tropical units, but you know, immunology, infectious diseases, etc. Eventually, I became head of all science funding, and then at the beginning of the 90s, I became the director. And so I was there all the time the Wellcome grew, between 1986 and 1995, when they'd sold off all their shares in the drug company. And the reason they did this was within the early 80s, the Wellcome Drug Company invented the first successful drug for viruses, Zovirax, which, which affects herpes. And then they developed the first drug that works on HIV, acyclovir. So that was the reason then trustees got permission from the courts to sell off the company, which they had to do. Of course, it was a will trust, and the, and the trust that the will certainly did not envisage uh, Henry Wellcome's trustees selling off the uh, thing. But it was a balmy situation having all investments in a single thing, no matter how good it was, it's always a dangerous investment policy. And that's what persuaded the courts that Wellcome should totally diversify their asset base. And the rest is history. We sold the shares off in a rising market. And suddenly, we had these lashings of cash, which was my job to work out <coughs> how to spend it. The chairman was the man who sold off the company. And uh, so then we had all this money rolling in. And uh, that's when we set up the Sanger Centre <coughs> near Cambridge. Uh, initially, we were asked by the MRC if they'd join us in, in setting that up. And the figure given us was £2 million. <laughs> it cost a great deal more than that in the end. And it was an extraordinary experience seeing uh, the whole uh, battle between uh, <laughs> John Sulston and Craig Venter who were the big leaders of the human genome first pass through the uh, genome. And two more disparate human beings I think you could never find in the world in space. Because John was an old-fashioned, and is, I think, still an old-fashioned left-winger who you know, was not interested in money. Uh, after we'd appointed him to run this big, what became very quickly a big enterprise, I suddenly thought to myself, I wonder what we're paying this guy. And he hadn't even asked about his salary. <laughs> and then Craig came along, and he's totally commercially minded. 
And John would never believe it, but one of the reasons he got so much money so quickly to take part in sequencing the human genome for the first time was because of the competition from Craig Venter. I watched the trustees, or by then the governors of the Wellcome Trust, set their jaws and think, oh, we're not going to allow this guy to beat us. <laughs> but John would never believe that. Anyway, that was an amazing uh, experience. And uh, then we uh, decided that we had enough money to leverage the government to try and do something about the infrastructure of the universities, which had been deeply neglected for about two decades. And that we did uh, very successfully with what became the first, uh, the, the joint infrastructure program in the late 90s. So they were the two big things that I got involved in. But all, that, all the time, meanwhile, of course, we were, we were funding people, giving grants, career development awards, and all the rest. So that was uh, really an extraordinary really amazing experience. Who would have thunk it, this little girl from the Australian bush doing that? Anyway, so I survived all that. And uh, as part of that, uh, I got involved with the tropical diseases program of uh, the WHO. And I learned there, through their Oncocircuit Control Program, that you can get, if you get the right players together, you can get industry and uh, uh, philanthropy and government together to, to attack a problem. So Merck provided uh, ivermectin to, to, to deal with onchocerciasis in people. And the other two organizations, Rockefeller and the WHO World Bank, provided the funds to distribute it and, and uh, uh, follow up. So that was a very interesting um, lesson for me, uh, because subsequently I then got involved in one of these new public private partnership things, product, project, pro, product development partnerships to develop uh, drugs for neglected diseases that have no market pull, like malaria, uh, TB, etc. And uh, I was involved with medicines for malaria venture, which was one of those early programs. So, I mean, it was really fabulous being involved in all these new things. Well, after I left Welcome, I've led a totally non-executive life. And uh, as Jenny said, I had the privilege of being on the board of Zeneca, then AstraZeneca, which was a wonderfully interesting experience, not least because of the foolish behavior of Monsanto over GM plants, which made life so difficult for everybody and still does. And I also had the somewhat bizarre experience of being on the main board of Lloyd's TSB Bank. The one thing I really learned there was to not trust banks for a single moment. If you think their customers are important to them, think again. You really cannot expect them to really treat you properly. Fortunately, I left the bank long before the banks went really <coughs> bad in the middle, middle uh, uh, the last decade. And um, as Jenny said, I've since then been things like on the board of CIUK, just at the time it was created. Uh, I've done all sorts of small things. One of the more complicated things I had to do was I was chairman of the uh, governing body of the uh, Institute of Animal Health all through the mad cow disease, and then we had the foot and mouth thing, and all the rest. I mean, that was a really awful experience, partly because the management was not clear. Was it the research council that funded it, or was it the governing body? So I had constant arguments with the head of the BBSRC about that, and trying to support the unfortunate director of the Institute of Animal Health, who had really had a hell of a time through all that time. Really very difficult. And agriculture, of course, has not been the flavor of the month for a long time. Very hard to find people with the appropriate training to work in those fields. And the anti-GM thing did further damage to the 
capacity to attract good people into that field. So, um, and I've had all sorts of other things that I'm currently involved with, just small things. I'm very interested in something called Sense About Science, which was set up by Lord Taverne because he thought the nonsense that was being talked about science by people like Prince Charles was really so damaging. Um, he's a QC, but his wife is a scientist, and that's how he got interested, and uh, a couple of other small bodies of that sort. And I work for a small autism charity, mainly because I know that people don't give money to diseases of the mind and disorders of the mind. They give it all to cancer, over 60% of donations for medical research for cancer in this country and I think in all countries. And um, I also work for the University of Wollongong, which is uh, south of Sydney in Australia, and I have a house there and I go there in the winter, trying to avoid the winter over here and have done for some years now. So my life in science has not been uh, like most people's because I know very well, and I've always known, that most scientists actually think the only way to be a scientist is to do research. And anything else, you're no longer a scientist, which is kind of balmy, but it's a very well-known phenomenon. When I told everybody that I was leaving my established post with the Medical Research Council's National Institute of Medical Research, they all said to me, but you can't do that. You're quite good at science. You'll never become an FRS now. Well, they were wrong. <laughs> but that is such a general attitude. And I simply say to you, look, there are many other ways of being a scientist. And uh, so don't, don't take this uh, attitude, which is in inevitable where you are now, because everybody else is doing research. But there are many ways of being a scientist. And I've had uh, such a wonderful, you know, broad, interesting experience, met all sorts of people through the many things I've got involved with. And I may have been very fortunate in the uh, risks and things I've taken, but uh, I've certainly benefited from it and had a wonderful time. And, you know, I, I was also always prepared to take a risk. I mean, I changed from a, initially from a university which everybody knew about to one that nobody's ever heard of, where I had a brilliant undergraduate experience. When I got to Cambridge, I immediately had a row with my college, Girton College, who didn't have a clue how to handle postgraduates, particularly from the colonies. <laughs> I changed the project that my supervisor suggested to me within two months of getting there because I didn't think it was doable. <laughs> I then went to, uh, uh, you know, became a member of the MRC's permanent staff and gave that up and joined a small, uh, as it was then, research funding charity. So. You know, I've been lucky, maybe, fortunate. I've taken rather big risks, but boy, has it paid off. Now, what I haven't talked about yet, and now I'll, I'll finish, finish the talk by talking about this, is uh, um, problems with men. Well, during my career, quite frankly, <laughs> I've never had any in a professional sense. My father uh, was uh, determined that I would go to university. He was regarded as being very eccentric in that very rural part of Australia where I grew up. Uh, they thought, you know, uh, high school education was quite enough for their sons, let alone their daughters. So father was thought, well, what an eccentric man sending his daughter off to university. And um, his bank manager did too. And one day father was called in <coughs> and, to, and his bank, bank manager said to him, now look here, John, you're spending all this money on your daughter's university education. You should be spending it on more fertilizer. <laughs> and father, dear man, said to him, well, as a matter of fact, Fred, it's the finest form of fertilizer I know. So that was a great start. 
And really it was that family uh, tradition of educating their daughters. My father had two sisters born right at the end of the 19th century who both uh, went to university. His older sisters did not. And I had, my mother didn't go to university, but she was, she was smarter than my father, actually. had a very quick, retentive mind. And two of her sisters did very well uh, professionally as well. So I had no need of female mentors outside the family. And it, frankly, I have to tell you, I didn't think there was a problem about women in science until I was about 50. Because the men accepted me as an undergraduate when I was the only <laughs> woman in the year. In everything I've done, I've been the only woman around about. But I just thought, well, you know, they just accepted me and I got on with it. The only time I had real problems was when I went out to Australia in 1971 on sabbatical <clears throat> to join what was then the CSIRO Division of Animal Health for a year. And at that time, the huge Australian CSIRO research organisation had one female on its staff. And uh, the women activists at the, that year that I arrived there went to see the chairman and said, now, look here, how come there's only one female scientist in your whole enormous organisation? I mean, lots of technicians and all the rest. And this guy huffed and puffed and puffed and huffed and finally he blurted out, well, it's not that we have any prejudice against women. We just always appoint the best chap for the job. <laughs> so that was the atmosphere then. And it has changed a bit in Australia but not hugely. And the bit of CSIRO I was working for had three laboratories, one in Brisbane, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne. I was based in the Sydney one. And the head of the division who'd known me when I was at Cambridge asked me to work in all of his three labs. So I managed to dream up a project that got all these chaps to work hard for me in all three labs. And we published 10 papers that year as a consequence of that pressurizing them and using their facilities to the maximum. And uh, towards the end of my time there, the head of the lab I was based in Sydney was due to retire soon, and they had an internal search committee to suggest names to the hierarchy. And one day, these chaps called me in, and I thought they were asking me to come in because they knew I knew everybody. And I went in the room, and there they were all sitting there wriggling like schoolboys on their chairs. And I thought, what's going on here? So finally, one of them blurted out to me, well, we just want to tell you that if you were a man, we'd be recommending you for the job. <laughs> so even as I took on this uh, crude remark, I realized they were actually paying me a compliment because they didn't have to say a word. And they knew that I would understand that if they recommended somebody female, they'd be ignored. But uh, that sort of thing never happened to me otherwise. But in, in a nutshell, that's why I came back here, didn't go back to Australia, because it was so male chauvinist. And unfortunately, Australia is still very chauvinist. Uh, the current head of CSIRO actually currently is a woman, and they've had uh, two female chairmen. And at the sort of government level, women are doing quite well. But some of you may have noticed what happened to, to the female prime minister who recently was voted out. It was shocking the way she was treated. I mean, just unbelievable. It was as if uh, the men felt released from their... Uh, so, you know, keeping their mouths shut about what they really thought about women. It was just indescribable the way she was treated. And unfortunately, not just because of that, I sometimes think that we're not doing as well as we should about women. This is something I'd like to talk to, see what you have to say about it. Um, um, 
I really got involved with uh, this issue when I went to a gathering of the professors of biology here, who have a little club apparently where they meet. It was up in Glasgow, I remember it well. And I went up there and there were 70 people in the room and I was the only woman. And I suddenly thought, dear God, there really is a problem here because all the labs are full of women. So I was pretty backward about getting involved in this issue, but I've tried to make up for it in other ways since. So I belonged to that older generation of women, which was really the first generation, I think, since the suffragettes to really begin to address the issue of, what, of feminism and how women are treated. And I think most of us thought that things would go on getting better and better, but um, that we'd be in a truly gender-emancipated world. But I think that things have at least plateaued. They may really have got worse. But maybe I'm being affected by the Australian experience with the unfortunate Prime Minister. And, you know, most men think that if, if you just say there should be equality for men and women, that's, that's feminism. Uh, you know, to me, that sort of should be automatic, but not at all. Uh, and there's still far too many men about who think that the incredible privileges showered of them just because they're men, they've earned on merit. Think about it. They really do have a certain mindset that uh, they don't, they're not even aware of, I think. And of course, whilst most sexism is subtle and often not verbalised, um, it's more evident through the actions of men. Uh, we're all too used to the fact that men feel absolutely free to make comments about your personal appearance or about your private life, you know, how you're going to look after your children, all that sort of thing, that may be verboten to say so, but they think it. And, um, and you know, the sort of thing, it's so common, if you're being assertive and, and determined about something, then you're aggressive, what a man would not be. I'm afraid that still happens. And uh, most serious is the behaviour of men when it comes to making appointments or promotions. And I have to tell you, Oxford does not have a good reputation here. Universities don't, which is a shocking thing, really, when you think the primary job of universities is to train the next generation. And, you know, I've heard too often here from women who have been told bluntly that, well, we're not going to give you this job because you're married to somebody or live with somebody who's got some chap who's got a job here. You're captive. I've heard that half a dozen times here. Or uh, we're not going to give you this job because I've got this young, young chap, this protege, who's, quite, who's good. Uh, and I think he should have it above you. I mean, it's appalling, but it's bluntly stated by a lot of senior men, still. How do they get away with it? What are you going to do about it, girls? It's just appalling. And a very senior female FRS, who's a very no-nonsense woman, physicist, said to me recently at a meeting, <laughs> uh, she knows plenty of second-rate men who are FRS, but she doesn't know a single woman who's an FRS and who's second-rate. <laughs> She's a very salty lady, and boy, does she speak up. <laughs> And one of the things is that when men fail, it's only themselves that have failed, not the whole of the male section of our race. But if women fail, then that's, that's bad. You know, all women are bad. It's, it can be really terrible, and that certainly had a big effect in Australia with the Prime Minister there. And uh, uh, reading about this topic recently, 
it was suggested that if, if you have 30% of, of a group female, the really sexist men then start getting worried because at about that point, women can really make their voice heard and implemented about uh, you know, how things should be run, uh, how women should be treated. But a lot of really sexist men get very nervous at that point. So that's my thoughts on this matter. As I say, I was singularly fortunate. I had none of this, except for that year I had in Australia, where I had a lovely time, but uh, wasn't uh, considered for a, for a senior post. Well, I shouldn't have been anyway, because I was only 32 at the time. Uh, but uh, because it was so blunt, the uh, male's uh, chauvinism then. And uh, so I think I've spoken enough. Over to you. Thank you.